OK, I'm going to start. Now, the last time, I was talking about the way in which Nietzsche, in general, is very different from other philosophers, and in particular, the way in which he thinks about philosophy, which is very different from the way in which many people thought about philosophy. As I said, one standard way of thinking about philosophy, and I think it's reasonable to call it the traditional way of thinking about philosophy, is to think that philosophy was a very definite kind of social role. It was a certain kind of uh, position in society. And it had associated with it a particular kind of activity. So there was a fixed role, which was the role of the philosopher. And the role of the philosopher was to ask a fixed kind of a set of questions. So the philosopher was a bit like, say, the wheelwright or the cook. So you might say, being a cook is a social role. Now, it isn't a social role that occurs in all societies. Because in some societies, you don't have special cooks. Just everybody cooks. So there might be a history of being a cook or a history of being a wheelwright. Because at certain times, you didn't have the, 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 the social function of being a cook. It's just I cooked something, and you cooked something. There weren't any cooks, just everybody cooked. And similarly, you might have people wandering around and doing various sorts of things. But then they invent the wheel, and they invent the idea of cooking. And then somehow you have particular social people who are designated as the cooks. So you have the hunters, and you have the cooks. And you have the people who farm, and you have the people who make wheels. And now, once you have that, so there's a history, which is a history of the genesis of the social role. And it wasn't always there. But once you have the social role, within that social role, there's a kind of continuity. So you might, it might be in a society which everybody cooks. There are no special cooks. But once you have the special social uh, position, which is the position of cook, that changes something. And then, of course, there will be changes in cooking technique. But those changes will be, as it were, internal changes in the social position and activity of the person who is the cook. And similarly, once you invent the wheel and you have wheel rights, the technology of wheel rights will change, but there'll be a kind, that'll be a kind of internal development within that function. Now, a lot of people think about philosophy that way, too. It isn't the case that, there are, there, there, that, that, that every society has philosophers. Philosophy has a history. But at a certain point, philosophy gets started. As you know, traditionally, it's when Thales uh, asks certain kinds of questions. So at some point, you have this, this social niche that gets established, which is the philosopher. And the philosopher is defined by asking certain kinds of questions and trying to answer those questions. And of course, in the course of history, the kinds of questions will change slightly, and the kinds of answers will change slightly, and arguments will become more complicated. But basically, it'll be the same kind of thing. Now, Nietzsche does not think that at all. He thinks there is no single social role, which is the platonic role of the philosopher. Rather, in what we call philosophers are people who inhabited very different social roles. And associated with those different social roles, they had different functions and different uh, kinds of standing. So 
In some societies, the philosopher is, for example, an advisor of a king. The, philo the philosopher Seneca, as you know, was the tutor and the political advisor of the Roman emperor Nero. Some philosophers are people who try to be the physician of the culture. So he says this, in his early period, he very often talks about the philosopher as the doctor of culture. The philosopher is the person who knows something about what's good and tries to cure the ills of society. Or the philosopher is the free thinker. He's the person who is free from certain prejudices and by virtue of being free from prejudices can do certain things that other people don't do. Or there's the role of the philosopher as the person who, is, who asks questions and experiments. Uh, so now note, these different social, and, and of course, for a long period, the philosopher is associated with the theologian. For the whole of the Middle Ages, the philosopher is a cleric who lives in holy orders and asks certain questions associated with that. So now notice, these different social functions don't always have associated, they don't always fit together easily. They don't always fit together naturally. There's a broad plurality of them, and they will have different conditions. So if I think of the philosopher as someone like a doctor, and I think of a philosopher as someone like an experimentalist, then it isn't obvious that the role of being a doctor, who is a person who applies relatively well-founded and well-tested remedies to relatively well-defined uh, kinds of disease, is the same as the person who tries something different out. You know, if you go to the doctor, if you break your arm and you go to the doctor, you don't necessarily want someone who is a great experimentalist. You don't want someone who will say, well, look, this break is very lovely. What can I do with this? You don't want someone who will ask different questions, play around with you, uh, you want someone who will apply a routine technique. You know, when my father was dying, they eventually made him an experimental subject. But that was because they'd given up on everything else. I mean, in general, when you go to Addenbrooks, you don't go to Addenbrooks to be experimented on and to have people try things out. There's a, so there, so there, those two functions are connected to each other, perhaps. And of course, you know, this is a big problem in medicine. Do you try to use the, the routine sorts of things that you know will cure people, or do you try to find new things out? But still, there's a tension there. So the social role of the there's no single social role of the philosopher, according to Nietzsche. The philosopher has a number of different uh, functions, and associated with this, and this is really important, there is no such thing as a what's called a philosophia perennis. It's not, there's no such thing as a standard basic set of philosophical questions that every philosopher must answer or, or, and ask. There is no such thing, Nietzsche thinks. There are different social roles. Associated with those different social roles, there are different pressing questions. And philosophers don't just all ask the question of the nature of causality, or all ask the question of the nature of the reference of language to the world, or all ask about skepticism. They don't all ask the same questions. They ask very different questions. So if you're a medieval philosopher, the really pressing question is, one really pressing question is, how do you put together uh, human reason and divine revelation? 
That's a thing that everybody in the, in the Middle Ages is really worried about. Now, that's not a question which is a question for any Greek philosopher, because the Greek philosophers don't stand in a religious tradition in which there is any kind of revelation. So for the Greek philosophers, the question, what's the relation between revelation and reason, or what's the relation between faith and reason, is just a non-question. But for a medieval philosopher, it's a really important question. Similarly, if you think about Plato, Plato asks basically a question, we've got an established kind of social hierarchy in Athens. We've got aristocrats who basically run this place that calls itself a democracy. And then you've got this new technique that comes in, which is the technique of learning how to speak well, rhetoric. The sophists come in and teach people how to speak well. Now, that's really disruptive to the society, because the traditional society is a traditional democracy. You follow the people who are the well-known people. You follow the aristocrats. Uh, you do what they say, basically. You, you talk about it, but you basically do what they say. And now, suddenly, anybody who has money can buy a technique, namely rhetorical training. And by virtue of buying that rhetorical training, can compete for political office. So there's a particular question about that. What's the nature of rhetoric? What's the nature of sophistry? What's the nature of the knowledge involved there? Now, that, Nietzsche says, is a particular question that comes up at a particular time. Similarly, Kant, of course, his big question is, what's the relation between Newtonian science and Christian morality? Right. Newtonian science seems to presuppose that the world is deterministic. Christian morality seems to presuppose that human beings have free will. How do you put together a view of the world that is a view of the world that says that the world is essentially causally determinate with a view of the world that says that human beings are essentially free and morally responsible? And then Kant, of course, has a complicated theory about putting those two things together. But of course, that too is a question that no Greek could have asked, because of course, in the ancient world, there's no Newtonian science. And as you know, the very idea that there are determinate laws of nature is not present in much of early Greek thought. They have different conceptions. They have some conceptions of necessity. But they don't have this conception of universal determinism. So also, of course, they don't have Christian conceptions of morality. As you also know, there's no concept of the will in ancient Greece, right? The concept of the will is invented by the Stoics. So Aristotle and Plato have no concept of the will. Now, you won't be able to tell that by reading the translations, because the translators into English are mostly 19th and early 20th century, so they put the concept of will in. But if you actually look at the text, there's no concept of the will. It's invented by the Stoics for a particular reason. So, so that Kantian project of asking the question, what's the relation between a deterministic world and a moral, a set of moral evalu and evaluative judgments that depend on assuming that people have are not determined, they have this thing called free will. That's a question that can't be asked. So now, so so there's no standard role for philosophy. And there's no standard set of questions. So one of the things Nietzsche constantly says is, don't fall to don't fall for the for the problem, don't fall for the illusion of what he calls Egyptianism. Egyptianism means thinking that all the questions are firmly set in stone. That philosophy is a sort of discussion of pyramids. The pyramids have been there forever. They've never changed. Nothing changes. So for Nietzsche, history is really important. It's not just an epiphenomenon. 
And history means the history of what the philosopher was supposed to do. Was he supposed to be a cleric? Was he supposed to be a prophet? Was he supposed to be a doctor? Was he supposed to be an advisor? That changes. And associated with that, the questions that philosophers ask a change. So it isn't just that philosophy has a history in the sense that they're always the same questions and there are different answers. That's one sense of philosophy's history. But another sense of philosophy's history is it isn't just that they're the same questions and different answers. There are different questions. So there are questions that, and questions don't come from nowhere. Questions come from real social conflict. So uh, questions aren't given by some kind, by the nature of thought or by the nature of our human life. Questions arise from the Greek situation in which the sophists come to Athens and they claim they can give you a certain kind of knowledge. That's a particular social thing. The 19th century, you have Christianity and Newtonian science and moral conceptions are... So they're particular conflicts. They're his, and for Nietzsche, the central idea is historicity and contingency. These, these questions are historical and there's no Hegelian or natural logic to the development of them. They arise out of the contingent conjunction between different historical forces. So if the sophists hadn't come to Athens, there might not have been any Platonic philosophy. Uh, the, the Platonic philosophy arises out of that particular kind of configuration, and there was nothing necessary about that. So history is this huge contingent thing. Now, so given that, what does Nietzsche himself think? He thinks that you can say something about what is a good philosopher, or what is a better philosopher, or what is more, a more interesting philosopher. That's something that he's saying in his own voice. So from the fact that you can't have a view from nowhere and say these are the important philosophical questions, and they're always the philosophical questions, it doesn't follow from that that I can't say what I find an interesting philosophical question. And so he says a number of things about that. He says, if what I'm interested in really is the good philosopher is not a person who finds a new argument or a new answer to the existing questions. The really good, interesting philosopher is someone who finds a new question to ask. So the important thing is not the answer, the important thing is asking a new question. And he thinks he has two questions that he's asked. One of them is not completely new, he thinks, but it's never been, as it were, posited as sharply as he puts it. And the other one he thinks is new. And the first question he thinks is, what is the value of morality? He says, look, a lot of moral philosophy, a lot of traditional philosophy operates on a certain assumption. It assumes that there is this thing called morality, that morality has a kind of coherence. And once you've shown, and, and morality obviously has value. You don't have to ask what the value of being good is. Being good, to be good, is to be a kind of self-endorsing kind of value. So now he says it isn't quite the case that no philosopher has asked the question about the value of morality. Plato asks it, and some medieval people ask it. Primarily the medieval people ask it because they can compare morality with certain religious conceptions, and they can ask whether what the value of morality is, say, for, for divine grace or other sorts of things. 
But in general, he thinks modern philosophers have simply ignored the question about the value of morality. And to ask the question of the value of morality means to see morality as it were as a whole and to step back from morality and ask what the relation of that whole enterprise is to something else which is valuable. And he says, that's the thing that's most difficult. It's difficult for us not just to say, why should I be moral? Is this moral? Is that moral? Is the other thing moral? But to look at morality as a whole, think about it, step back from it, not assume that it's obviously valuable in every way, and ask the question, what is the value of this institution? What is the value of, of being moral and of the institution of social morality? And then what do we mean by value? So that's the first kind of question that he thinks he asks in a way that's sharper than the way in which the, the questions have been asked, for, at least for the past couple of centuries. The other thing he thinks, and this is what he thinks is his own real contribution, he thinks he's the first one to have asked the question about the value of truth. That is, some people in the past have asked about the value of morality. So Christians have, early Christians asked, what's the relation between human morality and the salvation of one's soul. So they had access to this other set of values relative to which they could evaluate human morality. So they could ask that question. But they're not, but philosophers tend not to be interested in that. But the question of the value of truth, he, he says, he thinks, at least this is his claim, is his own. Everyone, he thinks, has more or less assumed that truth has value. Truth has value, and it has value in itself. Once you come to the conclusion that X is true, that's the end of the discussion. When we're discussing what to do about some particular political problem, once you've decided what's true, you don't have to ask what the value of knowing the truth about that is. So again, he says, to ask the question about the value of truth is to be able to stand back from the whole phenomenon of looking for the truth and pursuing the truth and getting the truth, looking, looking at that whole thing from a distance and seeing what the point of that whole enterprise is. And, uh, and, and only if you can do that can you ask this question. And so in a way, what he says is uh, his own preferred way of describing what he's doing is that he's asking the general question about the value of morality and asking the general question about the value of truth. And he thinks that this is, uh, that this is, uh, this is what, what distinguishes him from other philosophers. OK. Now, what concretely, then, uh, does Nietzsche think about the origin of philosophical questions for him? I said before, for him, Philosophical questions are not written in the structure of language or the structure of the human mind or in some platonic heaven. They arise out of particular concrete problems. So what particular concrete problems does he find? What does he think? How does he think they structure philosophical thought? He has a particular analysis of uh, a, a particular philosophical problem, and he starts from that. And he's got a crude analysis, and then he's got a more sophisticated analysis. And the crude analysis is essentially an analysis which depends on a diagnosis of the current situation. Now, the current situation, of course, for him, is the situation at the end of the 19th century. So what is the end of the 19th century like, and what are its problems? What conflicts are there? What problems are there? 
And his first answer to that is that the real threat or the real danger or the real problem in the late 19th century is uh, the threat of decadence or the threat of nihilism or the threat of loss of vitality. So there's a certain kind of set of social and political and psychic problems that he thinks exist. One, he sometimes calls it decadence. He sometimes calls it lack of vitality. He sometimes calls it nihilism. He sometimes calls it any number of things. But it's basically the same sort of thing. So the question from which his philosophizing arises is this question of what are we to do at the end of the 19th century when our society is faced with a loss of vitality in some way. Now, of course, you can deny the assumption. You can say, look, he had his head on backwards. There wasn't any loss of vitality at the end of the 19th century. It only looks like a loss of vitality because he's focused on certain sorts of things. Look, plenty of vitality in the 19th century. People setting, setting off on expeditions to kill lots of non-Europeans. Uh, people doing all sorts of things. They weren't, to be sure, writing Beethoven string quartets. But from the fact that they weren't writing Beethoven string quartets, it doesn't follow that they were lacking in vitality. So there are all sorts of ways in which you can worry about this diagnosis. But his project only makes sense if you see it as what he takes to be a response to this diagnosed situation, a situation in which we, we've lost vitality and we're we're, we're threatened by a loss of the will to continue to live and continue to do anything that has any kind of sense. A loss of meaning, a loss of vitality. Nihilism, he calls it, which he says sometimes means that our values are devaluing themselves. So nihilism means we're losing the ability to see the world as meaningful. All of these things are part of the same package for him. So, the diagnosis is we're in a, a situation in which uh, we're threatened by this. Uh, and in this situation, then what are we supposed to do? And his project is to say, if we understand the traditional morality and the traditional philosophical concepts that we have, that will help us understand why we're in the situation where we find ourselves in. So we're threatened by this loss of vitality. Uh, what are we to do about that? The first thing we have to do about that is we have to some, or not the first thing, one of the things you can do about that if you're a philosopher is you can try to understand how we got into this situation in which we were threatened by a loss of vitality. How could you even come to lose vitality? How does that happen? How can you even begin to lose the ability to see the world and make it look meaningful to yourself. That's how, how, is that, how, how is that possible? And the answer to that, he thinks, is part of the historical story. And only if you understand the historical story are you then in a position to understand why we're in the situation we're in, and then potentially to think about what we might do about that. So I'm going to talk. So now I'm on my page four of the handout, which is in which I try to describe what I'm trying to give in a sort of non-Nichean way, in my own way, uh, what I take to be the basic argument here. As I said, uh, Nietzsche was not, Nietzsche, as you know, was very, very keen, keenly opposed to abstractions and keenly opposed to the idea that philosophy was profound, right? So for Nietzsche, it's really important that 
they, that you're not a better philosopher by asking more general questions, and you're certainly not a better philosopher by asking very profound questions. What is the nature of being? How does language refer to the world? Um, what is causality? That, rather, he says, the philosopher has to dare to be superficial. You remember his biography, his autobiography, Ecce Homo, talks about what kind of food he likes, what kind of temperature he likes, and he says at the end, well, you might think these are trivial things. I'm writing my autobiography, and I don't talk about my views about the nature of being. I talk about the fact that I like pasta, and I like a Mediterranean climate, etc., etc. And he says, but, you, but you're wrong about that. Philosophy should be redirected away from the purportedly profound to the purportedly everyday. And then he says again and again, you remember, the Greeks were superficial, they were superficial out of a sense of profundity. So philosophy isn't supposed to be abstract and profound. The most abstract and profound thing you can do is look at the real world in its multifarious things. Uh, so reorient yourself from this, this relatively abstract way of thinking about uh, abstract structures that are thought to be more basic and more profound to the actual details. So I'm going to do exactly what he says you shouldn't do, but I'm going to do it for pedagogical reasons, uh, just to get you, um, to, to give you some kind of sense of how you can begin with this. So now, so what I'm going to say is there's a kind of basic argument then behind a, a lot of what he says. And, and that argument starts from a kind of criterion that he posits. So he says, basically, uh, the, the basic principle or criterion for judging anything is its vitality. Uh, that's, a, that's a kind of assumption in the argument. Uh, now, now, a society is good if it's vital. A human being is good if it's vital. A work of art is good if it's an exemplar of vitality. Now, note, this is not a, an assumptionless form of beginning. It isn't absolutely obvious that the basic way you should look at the world is through the category of vitality and decadence. So, so the basic way, he says, you to look, to look at the world is through life or lack of life. Vitality, lack of vitality. Decadence, lack of decadence. There's a series of dichotomies there. And, and that's the basic evaluative mechanism we should use about the world. Now, notice that in itself is an assumption. That's not something that you can simply uh, accept for no reason. Lots of people have thought that that's wrong. If you think of Rawls, Rawls says the basic way of evaluating society is not by looking at its vitality. It's by looking at justice, right? So Rawls says, look, the basic thing you start with is the a good society is a just society. It's not a vital society. Other people have said other sorts of things. So this is an assumption that Nietzsche is making. It's not, a, 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 it's not something that's lacking in uh, assumptions. It's not, it's not a kind of natural starting point. It's his assumption. He lives in a society in which he sees vitality as being a problem. And so he says, I'm going to look at the world through the lens of vitality or a lack of vitality, vitality or decadence. That's the way we're going to start. Now, he then gradually works himself into a situation in which he moves from a relatively low level and biological sense of vitality 
to a more complicated and sophisticated sense of vitality. That is, when we first think of the notion of vitality, we think of it as a biological category, perfectly, perfectly understandable. It's, it's a vital thing means the person is still alive. The thing is alive. It's vital or it's dead. It's alive, it's dead. It's vital or it's decadent. It's going to continue or it's going to die off. So it's natural for us to start with this metaphor of vitality or life or liveliness and to think of that as a as a as a, a, a basically a, a, a biological phenomenon. Now, what you see in Nietzsche is a continuous attempt to move away from that biologistic understanding of, of vitality, to move away from it, but he never actually succeeds in doing that completely. So, vitality starts. By, some, by, by being defined as some kind of ability to reproduce yourself, ability to get what you want, ability to uh, act in a particularly energetic way, gradually it gets uh, reinterpreted so that it has a less clearly biological basis, and vitality comes to mean things like artistic production. So in the beginning, the idea of vitality is a society is vital if it has a high birth rate and the people do this and it expands, etc. Then you have the idea that no, real vitality is not this biological category. It's the category of productivity. So the Renaissance is vital not by virtue of having a very high birth rate and a very low death rate, but it's vital by virtue of being culturally productive in a certain way. So the first thing that happens is this basic notion of vitality decadence gets reinterpreted. The, the opposition between vitality and decadence comes, it becomes itself something that's up for grabs. You start with this natural biological metaphor, but then you begin to interpret the biological metaphor. And you begin to ask, is it really vital if you live, but you can't produce works of art? If you, if, are you vital if you produce a lot of children? Are you vital if you produce lots of works of art? So the notion of vitality and decadence itself, they themselves become empty placeholders that need to be interpreted further. Second, the very opposition between vital and decadent comes to, become prob to seem problematic. As you know, Nietzsche himself was not a terribly healthy and vital person. He suffered, as you know, from uh, syphilis. He eventually uh, died of uh, a syphilitic uh, infection. Most of his life he spent in a, in a, in a dark room uh, throwing up uh, in, in, in Gauben, in, in, in Switzerland. Uh, he, he knew, so, so he knew that if you use the criterion of biological vitality, he was a loser, right? Because he wasn't anywhere on that scale. But of course, he thought, so there's a move from that notion of vitality to a different notion of vitality. And then an understanding that different kinds of non-vitality may be inherently connected with different kinds of vitality. So you start with a simple dichotomy. You see the, the two contrasts in the simple dichotomy as up for grabs. And then eventually, you come to see that the two things which you started by contrasting with each other are actually implicated in one another. So you start, so this is a typical Nietzschean thing. Nietzsche constantly says, 
we tend to dichotomize the world in situations in which it's inappropriate to dichotomize it. So we tend to think there's hot and there's cold, and there's hot and there's cold, and one excludes the other. But in fact, hot and cold is a, is a spectrum uh, between these two opposing things. And similarly, we think good and bad are sort of natural categories that exclude each other. But if you begin to think concretely, you'll see that the good and the bad are implicated in each other. So there's a kind of development in all of his books from a naive beginning to a more sophisticated thing. The naive beginning is, here I am. I know what's good. That's vitality. That means having a lot of children, beating people up on the head, and doing things. And anything else is decadence. And then you gradually see, one, that there are more sophisticated ways of understanding vitality. It isn't just biological reproduction, it's social reproduction or cultural reproduction. So instead of having a lot of children, you have a lot of disciples, right? So you have successive interpretations of the two categories. Then you also see that not everything that's vital can exist without some things that are not vital. You come to see that the two kinds of categories that you started by opposing are actually more intricately connected with each other than you thought. And that's a, the, a, a typical structure of his, of, of his work. Furthermore, of course, and connected with that, you come to see that there will be various different levels of analysis. And that the level of analysis that you pick will make a big difference into the kind of result that you have. When I say the criterion is vitality, do I mean the human soul? Do I mean the individual? Do I mean a group? Or do I mean the species of, of humanity altogether? What's the level of analysis at which I'm operating? Am I talking about a healthy, vital individual or a healthy, vital society? Now, of course, Plato tries to say the two of them are the same or are connected with each other. But Nietzsche is very keen on the fact that you can have vital individuals who are not necessarily part of a vital society. And you can have vital societies that are not necessarily comprised exclusively of vital individuals. So the level of analysis at which you do this is going to be important too. So you start with this notion of vitality or health. How do you interpret it philosophically? You interpret that philosophically then, first step, is you understand health or vitality not as a biological category, but as some category like the 19th century category of self-affirmation. This is a very, very common 19th century move. Uh, Hegel, Marx, a lot of people think this. The really important thing is not whether you're biologically healthy or not. The really important thing is whether you can affirm yourself. That is, whether you can value yourself, whether you can come to see yourself as good. That's a really central 19th century thought. And Marx, of course, thought you could affirm yourself only if you were actually acting in a certain context. And affirmation was a, was a, was a subordinate thing to that. But other people thought other things about it. So you start with this idea that health or vitality or whatever you want to call it is really, really, if you understand, I'm healthy if I can find my own life good, roughly speaking. I'm health, what the basic form of health is that I can value my own life and my own uh, li living. 
That's a way of being healthy, being self-affirmative, being self-valuing. Uh, and now, again, since this is philosophy, you can interpret that. That's an empty position, and you can interpret that in a number of different ways. What does it mean to say self-valuing? Does it mean self-affirming, or self-aggrandizing, or self-loving? Uh, self or what, what exactly does it mean? But it, it's some, there's some form of self-directed valuation that's involved there. Basically, I'm vital if I can affirm myself in my action, if I can see what I'm doing, if I can see that the life that I'm living is a good life. That's what it is. So a healthy society is not a society that hits a lot of people on the head or produces a lot of children. A healthy society is a society in which socially the people act in such a way that they can see that the life they are living is valuable. They can see that life as valuable in, its, in itself, in, in the living of it. That's what it is. That's Nietzsche's interpretation of this notion of vitality that he starts with. And as I said, that is not original, really, because you find that in Hegel, you can find that in Marx, you can find that in other people. So some notion of valuation, self-valuation. Now, what Nietzsche adds to that, though, is this. Now he says, think about what valuation means. Think about what it means for me to find something to be good. So find something to be good. What does it mean for me to find something to be good? So, something that I confirm. And now comes a substantive move from some of the earlier thinkers, in which he says, valuation is always inherently differential. That is, the model that we have is, if I find something good, that's sort of a one-place predicate, that, or that's one place. I find you good. That's the, there, there it is. I find you good. Nietzsche says, but to find anything good, it has to be that you find that thing good in comparison to something else. There's always a tacit differentiation involved in valuing anything. I can only find tea to be good if I find it to be better than coffee. What would it mean to say that I felt I felt I thought tea was good? What would it mean to say that I valued tea? Inherently, Nietzsche says, it must be the case, not just that I sort of slurp some tea, just drinking some tea, just drinking some tea and having some kind of mental image about the tea, that's not valuing the tea, that's just a physiological process. If, if you pour some tea down my throat and I have a reaction to it, that's not valuing tea. <coughs> valuing tea is going through the world and differentially seeking out tea rather than wine or beer or coffee. That is, I, I'm, ta I'm always tacitly saying that this is good as opposed to that, or this is good, this is better than that. Now, this is a substantive addition that he makes, that the internal structure of valuation is inherently comparative or differential or discriminating. I'm not valuing something if I just have a if I just get a positive jolt from it. That might be a nice thing to do. You might be, might, might be pleased to get a positive jolt, but that's not what we mean when we say uh, that, that, you're, that I'm valuing something. To say that I'm valuing something is I prefer. You can, another way to think about it is valuation is always preference. 
It, and preference means preferring x to some y. Now, it doesn't mean that it's always a preference of one particular thing to some other particular thing. That is, it doesn't, it, he's not saying to value t, you have to say t is better than coffee, and you have to be able to specify what the opposition is. That would be a pretty silly theory. It isn't that you have to be able to say what it is that you value less, but you're only engaged in valuation if you're committing yourself to a kind of hierarchical relation. That's the crucial thing. The nature of the hierarchical relation will be complicated. What will be lower in the hierarchy will be complicated. I, to say that, so I may say that I like T, I value T, and you might not know whether I'm actually thinking about T relative to coffee or tea not, or, or drinking tea as opposed to not drinking tea or tea vis-a-vis -vis wine, but whatever it is, there's a tacit, the structure of valuation is a structure of discrimination. That's another way of thinking about it. Structure of valuation is inherently a structure of discrimination, a structure of preferring one thing to another, a structure of, uh, uh, of, of preference. And now, that's a really important thing for him. Now, notice he uh, then has a further idea which is that valuation, we, you can think of, so, so we he then talks about, so now what, 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 can you, what can you say about the process of valuation? One thing is, uh, I can value something that I know. Second, I can produce new objects of value. And third, I can produce new ways of valuing. So one thing is, we've got the spectrum of tea and coffee. I prefer tea to coffee. I can only value tea if I'm valuing it, if I'm preferring it to coffee. The second thing is, I like, for example, uh, and good essays. I prefer good essays. So I like short, concise essays, say. Perhaps I prefer short, concise essays to long, prolix essays. And now another way of saying I value it is to say I, I don't just respond actively and positively when it's presented to me in a discriminating way. I don't just passively value it, but I actively value it in that I produce it. So Nietzsche wants to connect passive valuation and active valuation. So the passive valuation is, roughly speaking, the idea that I value something if it's presented to me, and I can see that it's good. And I can see that it's good. So you offer me a cup of tea, you offer me a cup of Yunnan tea, and you offer me some kind of ghastly coffee, and I am able to value the tea. Second case is, um, it isn't that you give me uh, tea, and uh, you offer me coffee, it's that I'm asked to write an essay. And I have to produce something which instantiates certain kinds of values. So you're the supervisor, and you say to me, make sure that this essay has the following properties. It treats all the topics, it's concise, etc. And I can produce something which satisfies those criteria. Now, that, he says, is an instance of a kind of active valuation. I'm not just responding to something that's presented to me. I'm producing something which has certain properties. Then the third sort of scenario is a scenario in which I don't actively 
produce something of value to specification from outside, but I produce new ways of valuing things. So as you know, at the beginning of the 19th, at the end of the 19th century, the beginning of the 20th century, there's a lot of discussion in art about the fact that new forms of art aren't, roughly speaking, uh, better attempts to satisfy the existing ideals, but they're attempts to find new ideals. So think of it this way. In the ancient world, there was the idea that you had certain genres. There was a genre which was the genre of epic, and you had Homer, and you had uh, you had um, Virgil, and you had various people who did epics. And to write an epic was to give a good instance of the same kind of thing that Homer did. So the idea was the genre had associated with it certain kinds of desiderata. And so Milton can try to write an epic. And to try to write a good epic is to try to write something which satisfies the same kinds of desiderata that Virgil and Homer did, but to a higher degree. So in the ancient conception, uh, literary composition is like is a bit like a, a, a race. You, you have a goal, and everybody starts out, and maybe Homer gets there first, and Virgil gets there second, and Milton gets there third, but it's the same race. The rules are the same. The goal is the same. Some are better, some are worse. But now notice that changes in Romanticism when people begin to think about it differently. They begin to say, no, 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 no. Literature is not about having pre-existing genres with pre-existing desiderata. And people aren't, you, the, the, the epic poet is not trying to do just the same thing as, as uh, Homer did, but doing it better. The, the property of art is to change the boundaries, change the rules do something which isn't just better in that it's a better way of doing what everyone has been doing before, but do something different, right? So instead of everyone running to the goal and one, man, one person gets there first, you, uh, you change the rules of the game while you're moving. So you begin to have, uh, as you know, there's a long discussion of this in uh, Harold Bloom, The Anxiety of Influence, the discussion of ways in which poets after Milton were terribly afraid of being influenced by their predecessors and therefore wanted to do something completely different. And of course, then at the end of the 19th century, you get, uh, you get a, a, an, out, an outpouring of all of this. You don't, it isn't, as it were, as if Picasso is trying to be a Renaissance painter. Right? The Renaissance painter has certain rules of perspective, certain rules of uh, visibility, certain rules of how paintings have to be active. It isn't as if Picasso is trying to do that and failing. It's that he's, he's, he's changing the rules. He's trying to write, do a kind of painting that is not good by those standards, but changing the standards of what's good. That's what I'm trying to say. So one idea is you do something which is good by pre-existing pre standards. Another idea is you do something which is good by new standards. You change the standards. So, so again, in the 19th century, you remember, uh, Proust says about Beethoven's late string quartets. Beethoven's late string quartets were not attempting to be Haydn quartets. Rather, it was the case they were intended to be works which would, which would generate for the first time an audience who would then be able to appreciate them. 
So you have a series of movements here. There's a minimal notion of valuation, which is I'm presented with something and I reactively or passively can value it. The second thing is I'm not reacting to it, I'm producing something. But I'm producing something that I can see a value relative to relatively pre-existing standards. And the third thing is I'm producing something that satisfies these modernist standards, namely I'm producing not just new works, good works, I'm producing new works that are good by virtue of instantiating new kinds of valuation. And now the thing about Nietzsche is he wants to connect those three notions of valuation. He basically wants to think you really are only able to appreciate things if you're capable of producing new things yourself. Uh, think, for example, about Adorno's analysis of, uh, of, of art. You know, you can't... So this is the opposite of the classicist view. It isn't that, well, Beethoven is there, and you can always appreciate Beethoven. You can really value it. The idea is you can only really value Beethoven if you are yourself capable of producing completely different kind of music. So the only person who's, who, so the only person who's capable truly of, of appreciating Beethoven is not the pianist who plays the Beethoven, but it's Schoenberg who, play, who creates a completely different kind of music. And, oh, and so that's why Adorno says the latest productions in art throw their are, are the light which allow us to understand the past. So simply going about your business valuing things uh, Nietzsche thinks is a dead-end project. You're never, you can't understand really what it would be like to under, so, so you can't understand what it would be like to affirm yourself and value yourself if your model of affirming and valuing is this passive model. T is presented to me and I like that better. You can only, if you really want to understand what it is for a person or a society to value themselves, the process of valuation has to be one in which there, one of the components of that process is not just a passive reception of things and not just an active production of things, but actually a production of things that represent new kinds of values. So the only good society is a society that can produce new art, roughly speaking. You can't, now, that is an assertion, of course. That's, that's a thesis. That's not a... That's not a, a, an obvious thing. And in fact, it's contrary, Nietzsche thinks, to the way in which a lot of philosophers have thought about things. A lot of philosophers have thought about things in a way that he thinks is deeply conservative. Namely, we can go, you know, we have democracy. That's a value. It's presented to us. We keep on affirming. We keep on affirming. We just go on. Just as every day you bring the cup of tea. I like the cup of tea. I like the cup of tea. Therefore, I affirm my life because every day a cup of tea arrives and I like it. That's not what he thinks. He thinks you can only really like the cup of tea that comes in if you're capable, actually, of producing new something else. Uh, think, for example, of the, uh, of the disagreement between Nietzsche and Wagner about the Louvre. During the Franco-Prussian War, as you know, there was a story, it turned out it was false, that was told that the Prussians, right, the Prussian army had surrounded Paris. There was a story that the Prussian army had bombed the Louvre and all the paintings in the Louvre had been burnt down. And Nietzsche was talking to Wagner, and Nietzsche was horrified. He said, oh, this great cultural thing that's been lost, oh, it's terrible. And Wagner says, if the French aren't able by themselves now to 
paint their own pictures that are at least as good, if not better, than those that were lost. They don't deserve to have the originals. Uh, because they can only appreciate, hey, they could only appreciate the originals if they were themselves capable of actually producing paintings that were better than the paintings there. So in that context, note, Nietzsche is on the wrong, Nietzsche's not, what, what I'm trying to say is that, that was a very young Nietzsche. Nietzsche eventually goes to Wagner's position on this, namely the position that any minimal way of thinking about yourself, which will see yourself as being good, will require you to be the sort of person who can invent new things, uh, change the standards of what is good. So if they couldn't redo these, not redo these paintings, they couldn't do other paintings that were just as good, then they weren't really seeing the old ones correctly. So uh, now, whatever you think about the example, um, think about the, what Wagner says there as the position that the mature Nietzsche takes himself. Okay. So, so valuation is differential, and valuation has this active component. Now, Nietzsche basically then thinks that this process of valuation cannot, therefore, depends on a kind of psychic tension in the human soul. The human soul can find the world good only if it differentiates. If it differentiates, that means it's in a state of tension. Then he thinks that that psychological tension can only really be maintained in a society that's hierarchically organized. So you can't simply have people who are in the appropriate psychological state of tension so that they can produce that which is new. With that, and with that as a kind of freestanding structure, that structure has to be embedded in a hierarchical structure. I can, so I can only find T in, better in a new way if I stand in a society of ranks where there are people who are qualitatively, who are, who are classified as qualitatively distinct. He calls this the pathos of distance. So he draws from this the conclusion that we need slavery. So remember, Nietzsche has a completely different view of slavery from Aristotle. Aristotle thinks <coughs> slavery is necessary because who's going to do the work? Nietzsche says slavery is important because we need people to, have, to hold in contempt. We, what, what's really important about slavery is not what the slaves do. What's really important about slavery is it's a social recognition of distance between the masters and the slaves. And that's important so that the masters can despise the slaves. Because only by despising the slaves can they maintain the kind of internal psychological tension, which is a necessary condition for them to engage in the activity of valuing. And therefore, valuation requires slavery. So, so the result of this is, as he says, all forms of egalitarianism, social egalitarianism, are essentially decadent. Because any form of social egalitarianism is a way of 
doing away with hierarchical organization of society, but if the hierarchical organization of society is necessary for there to be the internal tension, which is the tension which is the necessary condition for creation, then if you have a society with no internal hierarchical structures, a society of egalitarianism, that society will definitely, sooner or later, become decadent. It will lose the ability to discriminate and differentiate in the way that's necessary for it to be able to really to see itself as a value. As, as, as a value, as a value. And that's the central idea. The one thing we know about Nietzsche is the thing he always hated was democracy. We know from the very beginning. He, 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 as a young man, he, um, re, he withdrew from a student uh, fraternity because the student fraternity was insufficiently uh, hierarchically organized. Uh, he says, I'm, going, I'm not going to, now the student fraternities were themselves already elite organizations. And he said, I'm withdrawing it because it's becoming too democratic. So from the very, very beginning, he's against this. And this is, and now I'm not, uh, uh, as, I'm, as I said, I'm putting this argument in a structured way that Nietzsche himself wouldn't have preferred. But I'm giving, giving it to you in this form, because I think although he wouldn't have preferred it to be presented in this way, it might be make it easier for you to see what the structure is. So that's what the, uh, that's what the central structure is. Now, next time I'm going to start going through the genealogy of morality. So if you want actually to follow what's going on, you might begin to read the genealogy of morality. I'll start with the first essay and go through. OK, thank you.